Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. If you're new to this podcast, or Trip Hacks DC in general, hello, my name is Rob. I'm a tour guide, and I founded Trip Hacks DC back in 2017. My goal is to give you my best tips, tricks, and travel hacks so you can have the best possible trip when you come here to Washington, D.C. Today, I'm going to tell you my full-blown philosophy when it comes to travel and tourism here. Last month, I published the 50th episode of this podcast, a milestone for sure. I also passed the six-year anniversary of the Trip Hacks DC YouTube channel, where there are literally hundreds of Washington, D.C. travel tips videos. And I realized something important. As I meet tons of great guests from all over the world who come on my tours, very few people consume dozens of podcast episodes or hundreds of videos. Doing so would require a mind-boggling amount of hours. And that's okay. Don't feel bad if you don't have the hours to spare. But for that reason, I thought it was important to put everything I believe about Washington, D.C. travel in a single place, this episode. I also want to make sure I make it clear that this is my philosophy when it comes to Washington, D.C. travel. It's not necessarily the only way to travel. It may not even be the best way for you to travel. But I want to get this all out there because I've learned from doing this over the years that travelers often want to know what I think. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. Another reason I want to make this a single podcast episode is because the way that YouTube and social media works really makes it hard to do it over there. If you've ever gone on YouTube, you might have noticed when you watch a video, you get recommended a lot of similar videos. There are pros and cons to this for sure. But one of the biggest cons from my perspective is that you don't always get the full picture of something. You get the picture that the algorithm thinks you want. I also want to say that everything I recommend on the TripHex DC podcast, TripHex DC YouTube channel, or any other platform are things that I actually like and would spend my own money on. TripHex DC has no outside sponsors. I make no ads. The only ads you'll ever hear are for TripHex DC tours. I think this is important because outside sponsors and advertisers create conflicts of interest. More importantly for you, it makes it hard to know whether any recommendation is one that you can actually trust. Let me give you an example. I was flipping through TikTok recently, as one does, and I get a lot of Washington, D.C. content in my feed because that's what the TikTok algorithm has figured out, rightly, that I like to see. There are a few creators I see all the time, and I'm not going to name them because it's not necessary to name them, but they post a lot of sponsored ads. So I was flipping through, and I came across a video, and I saw that it was titled something like, Let me take you along to my favorite restaurant in D.C., this video was not marked as a paid ad. The creator claimed it was their favorite restaurant in D.C., and I have no way to know whether that's true or not. But the point I'm making is that I couldn't trust it. Because they post so many ads, I doubted whether their recommendation was genuine or not. This is what I never want to happen with TripHex DC. I never want anyone to hear something and wonder, huh, I wonder if that's true, or I wonder if that's genuine. 
As it turns out, I saw two other nearly identical TikTok videos for the same restaurant posted at the same time, and to me, that seems way too unlikely to be a coincidence. Trip Hacks DC is a tour company that makes money by selling tours. And the beauty of this business model is that I can create all of this content for free. If you want a full breakdown of how TripHacks DC makes money down to the exact percentages, I made an entire YouTube video with those numbers that I will link to in the show notes. Okay, now let's get into the meat of it. In this episode, I'm going to tell you my travel philosophy when it comes to the following topics. Whether DC is a good destination, the best time of year to come, the ideal trip length, the best areas to stay, the best airport to use, the best way to get around, how to build an itinerary, and food and the best places to eat. A phrase you're going to hear from me a lot in this episode is, I believe. Because again, this is my travel philosophy, it's not the only philosophy. Let's start with the big picture question. Is Washington DC a good travel destination? I believe the answer to this is overwhelmingly yes. As the capital of the United States, Washington DC has all kinds of federal government sites that are appealing to tourists. My hunch is when most people think of Washington DC as a travel destination, those federal government sites are the first things that come to mind. But Washington DC is also a big city with most of the good big city amenities that are attractive to travelers. I'm talking about good restaurants, theater, music, sports, nightlife, if that's what you're into. I believe this frequently gets overlooked because people compare Washington, D.C. to other big cities, specifically New York City. And they'll say, well, D.C. doesn't have as many restaurants, as many sports teams. Washington, D.C. doesn't have Broadway. And that's all objectively true. But also, realistically, as a tourist, how many restaurants do you need? You're still only going to eat three meals a day. I love New York City, and I go every year. But I believe comparing D.C. to New York or any other big city is a bit of a silly exercise, and everyone should visit both if they are able. Now, another thing I believe is that many people are pleasantly surprised when they visit Washington, D.C. There are a lot of potential explanations for this, but a big one, I believe, is that many people have low expectations of Washington, D.C. because of what they see in the news and in the media. I believe Washington, D.C. has a bit of an anti-Paris syndrome, actually. If you've never heard of Paris syndrome, here's an explanation from an Atlantic article by Chelsea Fagan that I think summarizes it well. Chelsea writes, quote, What is Paris syndrome exactly? Simply put, it's a collection of physical and psychological symptoms experienced by first-time visitors, realizing that Paris isn't, in fact, what they thought it would be. Watching movies set in Paris leaves one with an image of a city that is quaint, friendly, affluent, and likely still in black and white. Yet, despite our international desire to imagine this as a city where pigeons stay in the parks and waiters occasionally burst into song, Paris can be a harsh place. End quote. I'll link to this article in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. I've been to Paris and had a great time and made great memories. But it's true that Paris is a big world city. It's not the city of lights or the city of love that most of the egregious Hollywood movies portray it as. I knew this going in, 
But if your expectation of Paris was strictly from an old Hollywood black and white movie, you would be incredibly disappointed. That's Paris Syndrome. Now, the reason why I say that Washington, D.C. has an anti-Paris Syndrome is because our city is frequently used as a punching bag. Just this year, on multiple occasions, I have watched members of Congress and other prominent politicians, none of whom I will name because they don't deserve the attention, they will say the absolute nastiest and in many cases factually untrue things about Washington, D.C. If you watch a specific brand of cable news, you probably have an expectation about Washington, D.C. that's different from someone who doesn't follow this stuff closely. So I believe a lot of people come to Washington, D.C. with pretty rock-bottom expectations, and then they get here and realize, oh, it's actually kind of nice. I am fully willing to acknowledge that Washington, D.C. is not Disney World. No big city is. And if you want a Disney World experience, honestly, that's the only place you're going to get it. But if you have the right mindset, Washington, D.C. can be a great place to come and make travel memories. As far as the Hollywood portrayal of Washington, D.C. goes, so many movies set in D.C. are about the president or politicians or FBI agents or spies, and that's just not the daily lived experience for the vast majority of people here. And it's not what you're going to experience as a tourist either. Ultimately, I do believe Washington, D.C. is a good travel destination. If you ever hear a national politician talking trash about the city, I hope you can understand they are probably doing it to score cheap political points. Okay, so you've decided Washington, D.C. is the travel destination for you. The next question is, what's the best time of year to visit? I believe the best time to come to Washington, D.C. is when you can fit it into your family schedule. I am fully aware that for many people, particularly Americans, you can't just up and go someplace easily whenever you please. Many families with kids are limited to traveling when the kids are off school. If you work for a company, you probably only have a limited number of vacation days. And depending on what type of work you do, certain types of year might just be off limits. I always feel bad for tax accountants, who I feel like will never get a chance to see the cherry blossoms in full bloom because they're always slammed trying to get everything done before the April 15th deadline. So maybe you can't just up and come someplace anytime. But there are certain periods throughout the year that you can travel. So let's run through some things to consider, starting, of course, with the weather. Weather in Washington, D.C. is rarely what I would consider good. It's not like San Diego, where you can more or less count on warmth and low humidity throughout the year. Washington, D.C. does have four seasons, and that comes with pros and cons. But generally, even within the seasons, it is on the warmer end. That means winters will be cold, but not frigid, and summers will be very hot and humid. The best chance you have of experiencing a nice day in Washington, D.C. is either in the spring or the fall. However, you can't necessarily count on it. There are days in the winter, spring, and fall where you might experience temperatures quite a bit below average or quite a bit above average. I gave a tour last December, and I was out in shorts and a t-shirt. And then a couple of weeks later, also in December, I gave a tour in 9-degree Fahrenheit weather. Generally speaking, I believe the best weather months in D.C. are May and October. May is when we have the most consistent spring-like weather. And October is when we have the most consistent fall-like weather. 
And don't forget that October is during the Atlantic hurricane season. And even though Washington, D.C. is not on the beach, it's close enough to the Atlantic Ocean that hurricanes can and do hit the city. I believe the worst month of the year, weather-wise, is July. I'm sorry. I know this is when a lot of people come to D.C. because kids are on summer break, but weather in July is hot, humid, and just brutal. Even though July tends to be a very busy month for tourism, I am really only able to give one tour per day in July because that heat and humidity just saps your energy. Basically, what I'm saying is, don't come to Washington, D.C. expecting nice weather. And be willing to accept that based on your luck, it may be better or worse than what other people will experience. Now, when it comes to seasonality, weather is not just the only thing you need to consider. I believe the best tours I give are on days with low crowds. I believe most people will have a more enjoyable experience when crowds are low. I did a poll during one of my live streams and asked people whether they prefer heavy crowds or very light crowds, and it was about 90% in the light crowds direction. That said, there is someone who leaves comments on my YouTube videos and always seems to look for opportunities to tell me about how they came to Washington, D.C. in the winter offseason, and they were so disappointed because the city felt dead. Now, granted, they also came during COVID, so I'm not entirely sure what their exact experience was like. But it is true that if you go to the Lincoln Memorial in January, you will find noticeably fewer people there than if you go in July. Same goes for the museums and most of the other big tourist sites. Another non-weather related consideration when it comes to seasonality is hotel seasonality. Hotel rates in D.C. vary wildly from day to day, week to week, and month to month. Most people think hotel rates in D.C. are highest when the most tourists are in town. And that's not entirely true. Hotel rates in D.C. are highest when there are a lot of people in town, specifically when there are a lot of business travelers in town, and when there are big conferences and conventions. The reason is because some of these events bring tens of thousands of people to D.C., and hotels offer group rates for these events. So an event with 10,000 attendees means there are probably 10,000 hotel rooms withheld from the market for that event. So when are the most business travelers in town? Spring and fall tend to have a lot of them. So that's March, April, May, September, and October. Conference organizers tend to avoid putting their events next to holidays. So holidays tend to have few business travelers. The entire month of August is also a very slow month for business travel. And the week of Thanksgiving and the week between Christmas and New Year's have virtually zero business travelers in town and some of the lowest hotel rates of the entire year. Now, when it comes to crowds at the sites, an important variable is how many school field trips are here. I believe most visitors will have a better experience traveling at a time when there are relatively few field trips. As a tour guide, I can say that the experience of visiting, say, the Vietnam War Memorial is much more impactful when there are a few dozen people there versus during peak field trip season when there might be a few hundred 13-year-olds in there all at once. Field trip groups are, to some extent, unavoidable. They come pretty much year-round now. But the peak season for field trips is mid-March through Independence Day, and then again from about mid-September through Thanksgiving. The spring field trip season is more intense than the fall one. The reason I believe there is no single best month to visit D.C. is because it's all a matter of trade-offs. 
It's all pros and cons. May has the best spring weather, but it also has heavy field trip groups. So which is more important to you? January has cold gray weather, but relatively few field trip groups. August is hot and humid, but has cheap hotel rates because demand for rooms is low. And if your schedule is limited by family schedules and responsibilities, then you don't even have to worry about this stuff. Again, I believe the best time to come to Washington, D.C. is when you can come. But if you have the flexibility, I would ask what's actually most important to you. Is it low hotel rates, best possible weather, or crowd levels? Once you figure that out, you can start looking at a calendar to pick your dates. So, once you've decided when you want to come, the next critical question is, how long should your trip be? I believe that the ideal trip length is as long as you can reasonably afford, both in terms of dollars and in terms of time. In all of my years of giving tours, I've never had a guest tell me that they felt like their trip was too long. But I hear the opposite all the time. I believe for domestic travelers, your trip should be bare minimum three days, and for international travelers, minimum five days. I don't believe one-day trips are worth it. I don't think you should day trip to Washington, D.C. from New York or Philadelphia or any other nearby city. This is for the same reason why I don't think you should day trip to those places from D.C. They're all big destinations with too much for a single day. The only exception to this is that if there is something extremely specific that you want to do and you are okay with the fact that you're going to leave a lot on the table. I gave a private tour to a mom and daughter last year who came to D.C. for the day to see Wicked at the Kennedy Center and take a monuments tour. They were very honest and realistic about the fact that they wouldn't be going to any museums, that they wouldn't be seeing most of the federal government sites, but they really, really wanted to see Wicked at the Kennedy Center, and so that's the choice that they made. I'm okay with that. My pet peeve is when people send me messages or leave comments and say, hey, I'm passing through D.C. on my way to someplace else, only going to be there for one day. How do I see everything? And the answer is, you don't. If you're only here for one day, you can't. I also believe the airport layovers are the wrong time to try to see D.C. I know layovers suck. And if you have a six-hour layover at Dulles Airport before an international flight, it feels like a complete waste to just sit around at your gate when there is an entire city nearby. But these types of layover whirlwinds wind up just being stressful, and you wind up spending a big chunk of time on transportation to and from the airport to see next to nothing. Even with three days, which I think is the minimum, you're going to leave a lot on the table. If you haven't heard it yet, in episode 41, I interviewed a local who made it a goal to visit every museum in D.C. There are over 80 museums on the list. 80. So if you visited one per day with no breaks, it would take nearly three months to see them all. And this is just the museums. It's not even counting anything else there is to see and do in D.C., I believe five days is a better minimum and what I recommend for international visitors because for most internationals, the truth is this is the one chance you have. It's much more likely for a U.S. tourist to come back to D.C. than it is for someone from another country. So if this is your one chance, you want to make sure that you give yourself enough time to see everything that you want to do. A longer trip also gives you more opportunity to relax. 
If you're only here for three days, you're pretty much going to pack in as much as you possibly can. And most people who come for this amount of time tend to have very packed itineraries. On the other hand, if you come for a week, you might be able to sleep in on a couple of days or just hang around your hotel relaxing one afternoon. On this topic, what about day trips from D.C.? I believe if your trip is less than five days long, you should focus your experience on D.C. If your trip is five to seven days long, I would consider one day trip. If your trip is more than seven days long, potentially two or more day trips, depending on the exact circumstances. I believe the best day trips are not to really big cities. Like I said, I think New York City is a great city and a terrible day trip because it's way too huge to experience in a single day. The best day trips are to places like Old Town Alexandria, Charlottesville, where you can see Monticello, Gettysburg, if you're into the Civil War battlefields. Baltimore is one big city I think you can do as a day trip because it's close, it's an easy train ride up, and small enough that you can consolidate a lot into a day. Like I said at the beginning, I ultimately believe the best trip length is the longest that you can afford. I appreciate that Washington, D.C. is not a cheap destination. An entire week may simply not be in your budget, and that's okay. Or you might only have a limited number of vacation days, and if that's what you've got, it's what you've got. My advice for three days kind of assumes that you can do it over a weekend, and maybe only have to take one vacation day. But don't break your bank or go into debt for a trip longer than you can afford. Okay, now that you've nailed down your trip length and your dates, you've got to decide where to stay. I believe the best area to stay is in the location that's closest to the things that you want to do. Granted, that's an overly simplistic way of thinking about this, I know. Most visitors are not going to do things in only one geographic location. You might go see the National Museums and the Capitol and Arlington Cemetery and the Zoo, and those are located all over the place. In the before times, my advice was simple. If it's your first time, stay in a hotel close to the White House. This puts you in close walking proximity to a lot of sites, but also close to all metro lines to get you to other places. Now, I have to be honest. COVID has not been kind to downtown D.C. My hunch is that it has not been kind to downtown of any other city. Downtown is much less vibrant than in the before times. It has fewer people out and about. It just doesn't have the same vibes as before. I am not saying it's a bad area to stay. I still think lots of people can stay near the White House and have a perfectly nice time. But if you've been to D.C. before, I think you'll notice the vibe shift, honestly. On my website at triphacksdc.com hotels, I have a guide with 11 areas that I recommend. And I recorded a full-blown podcast episode, number 37, which is a deep dive into those 11 areas. So I'm not going to rehash that here. I do believe that it's best to stay in town and close to the things that you want to do, rather than commute in from the suburbs. I know not everyone agrees with me about this. I know people who are perfectly happy to stay way out at the end of various metro lines and commute every day. So let me explain the two reasons why I don't believe this is the right way to go. First is that I believe money is not the only currency you need to think about on a trip. For many people, the most valuable currency you have is your time. 
and spending a significant chunk of your time commuting in and out is not a good use of that time. The second reason is because, as a tourist, Washington, D.C. is a go-go-go type of travel destination. It's not a beach vacation. You're going to do a lot of activities, visit a lot of sites, and do a lot of walking. More walking than most people are used to doing back home. It gets exhausting. And when you stay way out in the suburbs and commute in, it makes it nearly impossible to accommodate midday breaks. And I know if you're planning a trip, looking at an itinerary on paper, you think you won't need those midday breaks. But trust me, especially families with kids, having midday breaks can substantially increase the quality of your trip. When I lead private tours of the monuments, I start them at 5 p.m. Sometimes people ask why I don't start them later. And actually, I used to start them later. I used to try to time them so that the last third, if not the last half of the tour, would be after sunset. But what I realized is that a lot of people were showing up for the tour at 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m., and they were totally wiped. They commuted in during the morning rush hour and had been going hard pretty much all day. And then, having to go another two and a half to three hours after that and commute all the way back, that was pushing it. On the other hand... Guests who had taken a midday break often arrived with much more energy and were able to have a much better time. So if you're having a hard time narrowing down where you want to stay, I strongly suggest listening to episode 39 and hearing the pros and cons of each of the 11 areas that I think are good for tourists. If you stick to any of those 11 areas, I think you'll be okay. And I do not believe it's worth venturing outside of those areas unless you have a very, very specific reason for doing so. All right. Next, I want to talk about airports because this is a complex and sometimes confusing topic, but I need to refill my iced coffee before we go tackle it. So let's take a quick break. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip. And that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to TripHacksDC.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing TripHacksDC tour guides. And we're back. Washington, D.C. has three airports, and they are not all equally close or convenient to the city. I wish I could say it is always best to fly to this one airport. End of story. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. Even if you're not planning to fly when you visit D.C., I do think a lot of what I'm about to say applies to any city with multiple airports, so I still think it's worth listening anyway. Now, there are three airports in the D.C. area. In order of proximity from downtown, they are Washington Reagan National Airport, Washington Dulles International Airport, and Baltimore Washington International Airport. Technically, the last one, code BWI, is the airport for Baltimore, but decades ago, they renamed it to Baltimore-Washington International 
because they really wanted people who live in or are visiting D.C. to use it. So for the purpose of this discussion, it's a D.C. airport. Now, whenever I can, I try to use Reagan National Airport. I believe if you can find a flight to this airport that works for you, it's better than the others. Since it's close to the city, transportation is relatively cheap and easy. You can get to a downtown hotel in a taxi for currently around $25. If you want an even cheaper option, you can take Metro, which has a station right at the airport terminal for about $2.50 per person. And since you're so close, you don't have to waste a lot of time or energy getting in and out. As the name suggests, this is a national airport, which means all the flights are domestic flights. There are a small number to Canada and Caribbean countries with CBP preclearance, but it's not worth getting into now what that is. This is one of the most political airports in the country, quite literally. Major changes require acts of Congress. Congress members often act in their own selfish best interests. They want flights to the places where they go, but the airport is currently at about 100% capacity, which means adding a flight to one city requires taking away a flight from another city. That's all to say, if you are lucky enough to live in a place with a nonstop flight to this airport, I would strongly suggest taking advantage because it is a great option. The other two airports, Dulles and BWI, are farther away and it's more expensive and more difficult to get into the city. That said, the Silver Line extension to Dulles Airport opened in 2022 and it is a bit of a game changer in my opinion. At the time I'm recording this episode, Metro fare is capped at $6 during peak periods, so the most you'll ever pay to ride in from Dulles is $6. That, I believe, is one of the best deals in town. A lot of cities tack on fare premiums for airport rides, and I wouldn't be surprised if this happens for Dulles eventually. But at least for now, $6 is a steal. That said, the metro ride out to Dulles is long and slow. Depending on where your hotel is located, it might be an hour to an hour and a half if you take the metro option. Metro is also not 24 hours, so depending on how early or late your flight is, you might need to be careful because Metro may not be an option. BWI does have public transportation, but it's the weakest of the three. There's a train station located near the airport, but you have to ride a shuttle bus to get to it. Then you can choose between Amtrak or a Maryland commuter train to get into Union Station. Once you're at Union Station, you still need to get yourself to your hotel or final destination. BWI is also the farthest airport from the city, and a taxi ride is currently around $100. So, I believe the best airport, in order, is Reagan National, then Dulles, then BWI. But like I said, it's not always so simple, because this simple analysis assumes you have nonstop flights from your city to all of these airports, it assumes those nonstop flights depart and arrive at convenient times, and it assumes that the price is the same for all options. And if you've ever flown before, you know it's never that simple. What if your city only has a connecting flight? What if the times are super early or super late? What if the price for one airport is cheap, but another is extremely expensive? This is where this becomes more of an art than a science. 
I believe the best flight is one that is nonstop, arrives around noon, and is not unreasonably expensive. The way a lot of people research flights is by typing in an origin and a destination and then sorting by price. That's fine if price is the most important variable for you, but that nonstop noon flight is pretty unlikely to land at the top when you sort by price. Instead, you're probably going to get either flights with connections or flights that arrive early or late. That's when you've got to use those search tool filters. You've got to narrow it down to only nonstop flights. You've got to specify the time of day that you want to go. But maybe you're from a smaller city that only has connecting flights, or you can only afford the flights that arrive at less than ideal times. Again, more art than science. These are trade-offs that only you can figure out how to make. Let me run you through two examples from a couple of my own recent trips. The first was a domestic trip to a city in the south. There were nonstop flights out of either Reagan National or BWI. The BWI flights were less expensive, $70 instead of $100. I chose the more expensive $100 flight because I knew the cost and hassle of getting to BWI would easily outweigh whatever savings I was getting on the flight. The second example was an international trip. In this case, I had two options, a nonstop flight to Dulles or a connecting flight to Reagan National with a layover, including customs in Newark, New Jersey. The price for both flights was about the same. In this case, I chose the Dulles flight. Even though I prefer Reagan National when all else is equal, in this case, all else was not equal. The layover in New Jersey meant adding an extra four hours onto the itinerary. It meant an increased chance of something going wrong if either the first or second leg was delayed. It meant increasing the chance of the airline losing my luggage or just generally something bad happening. In this case, the price was equal between the two. But if it was the case that the connecting flight with the New Jersey layover was half the price, I might have chosen that one anyway. Again, art rather than science. One thing I will say to wrap up this section is that I don't believe that sorting flights by least expensive is the best approach to it. Maybe it's okay for flights between two cities that each have one airport and a limited number of daily departures, but for a more complex situation like DC or any other city with multiple airports, it's going to take more brain power to figure it out. Okay, now let's switch over and talk about the best and worst ways for Washington DC travelers to get around, because I know this is a topic that causes a lot of stress for a lot of people. I strongly believe that the worst way for a Washington DC visitor to get around is driving in their own car. I don't believe tourists have any business driving in DC. Driving to get in or to take a day trip, okay. Driving to get to dinner or to the museums or any other big sites, no, absolutely not. Driving in DC is stressful and unpleasant and requires a degree of skill and patience that not everyone has. I believe there are quite a few locals who have no business driving in DC either, but that's a topic for another day. If you're flying in, I believe it's best to skip the airport rental car. If you're driving in, I believe it's best to find a garage, whether that's at your hotel or long-term at the airport or elsewhere, to safely leave your car for the duration of the trip. Now, let's switch from worst to best. I believe the best way of getting around 
if you are physically able, is with your own two feet. Washington, D.C. is a relatively walkable city by American standards. It's far from perfect, trust me. I am supremely jealous of other cities in other countries where it's much better. But it's good enough that for most people, walking is the best option to get from point A to point B. That said, I also want to acknowledge that not everyone is physically able to walk. Or if they can walk short distances, they might not be up for longer distances. If you can get around Washington, D.C. primarily on foot, you are going to do a ton of walking. And if your body is not used to it, it will be uncomfortable. I believe Metro is the next best way for Washington, D.C. travelers to get around, assuming you're going somewhere that Metro goes. Our Metro is quite good, again, by American standards. If you've ridden the subway in New York, you'll find compared to that, it feels clean and it's easy to understand. If you've ridden the subway in other world cities, you may feel differently. Or if you've never ridden any subway, you may be amazed by how awesome they are. However, like I said, Metro is great when you're going somewhere that's Metro accessible. Not every site is, unfortunately. For example, there is no Metro station adjacent to the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial. Famously, there is no Metro station in Georgetown. But for places like the Capitol, the Zoo, Arlington Cemetery, Metro is a fantastic way to get yourself there. After Metro, the Circulator Bus helps fill in a lot of the tourism gaps. I believe Circulator Bus is a good way for Washington, D.C. travelers to get around if you can get where you need to go. For example, if you want to go to Georgetown, there's a Circulator Bus route that runs from Union Station all the way down K Street right through Georgetown. If you're staying at a hotel near the White House, Walking a few blocks to K Street and then taking the bus to Georgetown is an excellent way to go. When it comes to buses, I believe the Circulator Bus has more utility for visitors than Metro Bus does. I'm not saying locals don't use Circulator. I use it all the time. And I'm not saying travelers never use Metro Bus. But generally speaking, that's how I believe it shakes out. Sometimes, though, you just don't want to deal with public transportation, especially at the end of a long day. And I believe that taxis and Uber and Lyft all have a place in the transportation system. But I believe it's best if you don't rely on these exclusively for getting around. There was a period of time in the 2010s when obscene amount of money were getting poured into Uber and Lyft rides. For years, these rides were artificially cheap. During this time period, I met travelers who told me They didn't even bother trying to figure out how to use the Metro because Uber was so cheap that there was no reason to use anything else. This is no longer the case. The era of super cheap rides is over. And if you want to hire a driver to take you everywhere nowadays, it's going to cost. But like I said, it does have its time and place. For example, my private tours usually start at the Jefferson Memorial. And the Jefferson Memorial is just kind of tough to get to on public transportation. So for the sake of making sure you arrive on time and with energy to spare, I think hiring a ride to get over to the tour meeting spot is a good use of this option. I believe, ultimately, that we are lucky in Washington, D.C. to have so many ways of getting around. While I believe strongly that there is one worst way of getting around, it's pretty cool to have different options depending on your exact needs. Now let's move on to talk about how to build an itinerary, or before we get to that, 
Let's talk about whether I believe you need an itinerary at all. I believe the best trip is a trip that has the most important activities planned in advance, but still leaves space for some flexible or spontaneous activities. A few years back, I did a live stream on YouTube where I reviewed people's travel itineraries. It was a fascinating experiment, particularly because I didn't really have any special requirements when I asked for volunteers. I just said, send me your itinerary. I got some that weren't more than a few sentences long. Basically, they just said, we're arriving on this date, leaving on this date, staying at this hotel, and going to see museums. On the other end of the spectrum, I got some itineraries that were planned almost literally down to the minute. They had arrival times for specific sites, they had dinner reservations, and they had absolutely no free time or flex time. I believe the best itinerary falls somewhere in between these two extremes. There are some things in Washington, D.C. you do need to plan in advance. You just do. And if you don't plan in advance, there's a chance you might not get to do them. For example, TripHex DC private tours. This year, 2023, private tours generally sold out a few weeks in advance, even more during peak season. And remember, there is only one of me, so once I'm booked, I'm booked. It pains me how many emails I got from people who looked at the calendar, didn't see any availability, and then asked if I could squeeze them in. While I am always happy to add people to the waitlist, very few on this year's waitlist were actually able to take a tour. And those were just the people who wrote in. I have no idea how many people wanted to book a tour, looked at the calendar on the website, saw no availability, and gave up. If this is something you really want to do, you need to plan it in advance. And it's not just my tours. There are quite a few sites in Washington, D.C. that require advance tickets or reservations. They might be free tickets, but you still need them. These include things like the Washington Monument, African American History and Culture Museum, Library of Congress, Ford's Theater. If you want to do a public tour of the White House, which is not one of my personal favorites, but I know is a popular thing to do, you need to plan ahead for that. Circling this back to the length of your trip, the longer your trip is, the easier it is to build an itinerary. If you have seven days in D.C., it's a lot easier to slot things in at different times. Versus, if your trip is only three days long, you've really got to pack it in. That's another reason why I believe your trip should be as long as you can afford. You also have to take into consideration that not everything is open every day. The Library of Congress, for example, at the time I'm recording this, is only open five days per week, closed on Sunday and Monday. A lot of tours don't run every day of the week. Some only run once or twice per week. As much as I would love to run the TripHex DC Monumental Trivia Tour more frequently, this year there was only capacity to run it once per week. So if that's something you really wanted to do, you needed to make sure to plan it into your itinerary in advance. All of that said, a lot of things don't require tickets or reservations, and you can put them into your itinerary as you see fit. For example, most of the big museums in D.C. don't require any kind of reservations. You just walk in whenever you want. Now let me tell you about how I build itineraries when I travel. First, I take a piece of paper and divide it into a grid, based on the number of days of the trip. So if the trip is five days long, I make five columns. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then I divide it the other way into morning, afternoon, and evening. If you don't want to do this with paper, you could use a spreadsheet or some other digital tool. 
Next, I make a big list of everything that I want to do in no particular order. Just get it all written down. Then I mark everything on that list as something that can only be done on a certain day or at a certain time. For example, if the Triphex DC Monumental Trivia Tour is on the list, I would mark that as only Friday evening. If there's a soccer game that I really want to attend, but it's only on Sunday afternoon, I would mark it as only Sunday afternoon. If the Library of Congress is on the list, I would mark it as Tuesday through Saturday. Once you've got everything marked like that, start moving them over onto your grid. Go from most restrictive to least restrictive. A tour that only runs once a week needs to go on the day that it runs. If your trip is long enough, it's okay to leave some parts of the grid as a free space or TBD. If you want to sleep in on one day, sleep in. You're on vacation. It's allowed. Maybe another day you just want to walk around a neighborhood with no agenda. That can definitely be fun. Sometimes you only discover something fun once you're in destination, and if you don't have a free space on your grid, it's going to be tough to figure out how to do it. I believe the best itinerary is balanced. The most important things that you want to do are planned and booked in advance. But the itinerary is not so overly packed that you get exhausted and you can't enjoy anything. Itinerary building is definitely a skill. It takes practice to get good. But hopefully, even if you're new, these tips can help you out. Now, something I have barely even covered, but I know is important for many travelers, is food and where to eat. I'm actually going to keep this discussion relatively short because this is a complex topic and I am planning on making an ultimate DC food guide either as a video or podcast episode probably next year so stay tuned for that. First, I believe that Washington DC has an amazing food scene. Sometimes this gets underappreciated because people will compare Washington DC to mega cities. They'll say, oh, the food scene in DC is nothing compared to New York or Paris or Tokyo, which, okay, might be true, but that really only matters if you live in these places. As a tourist, you only have a finite number of meals. A one-week trip to Washington DC is going to have the same number of meals as a one-week trip to Paris. You can eat amazing food in both places. I also believe some people stress out about food way too much. I recently got an email from someone who wrote, I would love to know a recommendation for the best high-end restaurant in DC. And the thing is, I can't honestly answer this question. Firstly, because there is no single best high-end restaurant in DC. There are many great high-end restaurants. And second, because I haven't been to all of them. So perhaps I could say I went to this one or that one and had a good experience, but it is quite literally impossible for me to declare the single best restaurant in DC when there are many that I've never gone to. In episode 49, my interview with Jessica Sidman, food editor for Washingtonian Magazine, I asked about the 100 Very Best Restaurants Guide that they publish, and I want you to think about that. There are 100 restaurants in that guide. 100. A typical trip that's a week long or less is barely going to scratch the surface of what's on there. I believe if you put too much pressure on finding, quote-unquote, the best restaurant in town, you'll probably wind up with buyer's remorse because you'll always wonder about someplace else that you didn't go. So mentally, I believe the best thing to do is pick a restaurant and going in know that it's going to be a solid meal. Hopefully a memorable meal 
but don't worry about finding the one that is the single best. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter. If it's a good memory, that's what's important. If you're able to, I believe a food tour is a great way to try a lot of things in an efficient way. If you're curious about the quote-unquote DC foods, this is a great way to give them a try without committing an entire meal to them. Personally, I am actually a huge fan of food tours. When I travel to a new destination, one of the first things I do is go and see what the food tour options are. Food tours are usually not cheap. The most recent food tour I took was over $100 per ticket, but it was absolutely worth it. Remember, a food tour, at least a good one, is not just a chaperone taking you to a few different restaurants. A good food tour is a full-blown history or neighborhood tour combined with the equivalent of a meal's worth of food. When you consider the fact that it's actually two things in one, the sticker price starts to look like a pretty good value. As far as restaurants go, I think it's worth asking yourself what you want to get out of it. DC is not a cheap city, and restaurant meals are going to be one of the biggest expenses on your trip, especially if you're looking at high-end restaurants. Since you're in vacation mode, maybe you're willing to splurge. I don't believe it's necessarily best to always think about dollars above all else. Sometimes the best restaurant is going to be a splurge, it's going to be expensive, but it will be such a good memory that it will be worth the price of admission. Most restaurants post their menus online, so you can get a general sense of how much things are going to cost. I will warn that alcohol at restaurants is expensive. Beer tends to be the cheapest, but you still might be looking at a $10 pint of craft beer. Cocktails are the most expensive, and restaurants are starting to push the $20 per cocktail range. So add two cocktails per person to a meal, and you can start to see how this will add up quick. I'm not saying you have to go and be sober as a judge when you go out to dinner. Just be aware of what you're getting yourself into. I believe it's a better experience when you go into a splurge meal knowing what it's going to cost, rather than being sticker-shocked at the end. I believe you can eat amazingly well when you visit Washington, D.C. I also believe you can eat kind of terribly if you make no plans, no reservations, and eat all of your meals at food courts. The ultimate question is, how important is food and restaurants to your trip? If you're not a foodie and you don't really care, no judgment. Everybody has different priorities. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out this episode. If you're still listening, thank you for sticking around till the end. I have a lot of opinions about Washington, D.C. travel and tourism, and I appreciate that you have enough trust in me to listen to all of them. Since I don't have a guest, I want to go ahead and make one more plug for TripHacks D.C. tours. I've been a tour guide for over a decade, and I love showing people around when they visit. I am able to produce this podcast the TripHex DC YouTube channel, and all TripHex DC content completely free and ad-free because of everyone who signs up for a tour. So if you have or are planning to, then you are absolutely my favorite people. And if you want to find out more, just head on over to the website and check it out. Thanks for listening to the TripHex DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a TripHex DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.